Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of Boyle. Today I'm joined by Niall Queenan, who works as a screenwriter and has most recently written for Netflix for their second season of the blockbuster series Vikings Van Halla. We're going to jump into the fascinating world of screenwriting with Niall as he shares his incredible journey and insights throughout the years. From starting as a writer's assistant to becoming a scriptwriter for Netflix, Niall takes us through his experiences, challenges and triumphs in the industry. We'll also get a behind-the-scenes look at the creative process and the collaboration that fuels TV shows. Niall gives us his thoughts on the potential impact of AI in the entertainment industry and the importance of preserving the human voice in storytelling. He also touches on his involvement in an upcoming biopic. So with that said, put the feet up, relax, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Niall, welcome to the Voices of Boyle podcast. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Carlo. No problem at all. So, Niall, before we get into the main topic of uh, this week's episode, which is going to be your work as a scriptwriter for TV, film, and recently a Netflix blockbuster series, why don't you take us back to the early days and tell us a bit about where you were born and where you grew up? Uh, yeah, well, I'm not like from the town of Boyle, technically. I'm from Claris, just about like three and a half miles out the road. But I uh, went to school in Boyle after primary school, of course. Uh, I was born actually up in the Coombe, believe it or not, rather than Sligo or Scammon Hospital. Where Coombe? Up in the Coombe in Dublin, okay, yeah. Right. <clears throat> Mom, I think, uh, was a nurse there for a while and I think so she had a good association. <laughs> yeah. I know she she loves reminding me of that as well. I see your ta- your team won the All Ireland today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, grew up grew up in in Calaris, out in the countryside. Went to school then down in Cargine Row. I did a year. I think it was baby infants. I did it in the primary school in in Boyle, and then um, mom moved us down to Cargine Row National School, which is where she she grew up and she had gone to school. And I think my granny had this notion that we should go there as well or something. But I uh, went there anyway for primary school and then into St. Mary's for the uh, secondary school. And um, yeah, moved up to Dublin then after that for college and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So for anyone that wouldn't know you, Niall, did certainly mm-hmm. know your mum, Mary Queenan, who was the district district nurse in Boyle and the surrounding areas for a long time. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. When, when was that? When did she retire um, as such? Was well, mum mum moved from the public health job that she was in up to a role in Roscommon for the kind of last part of her career. It would have been in the noughties sometime and then. I don't oh, okay, know the exact yeah. dates. Yeah. But yeah, certainly I think a lot of people in Boyle through the 80s and 90s, certainly, and the early noughties maybe, they'd have known mum quite well. She Definitely. would have been into a lot of houses. She would know probably everyone our age. Yeah. She would have known them as babies and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, we spent many an evening sitting around the um, the clinic and in Boyle doing our homework, waiting for mom to finish her calls. That's or, right. That's where she was. Yeah. yeah, or in the car, just going around all around the town, sitting outside, waiting for her to finish up for the day or yeah. whatever. So, yeah, we certainly got to see all parts of Boyle for sure, like yeah. usually from the back of the car or something. And for do you have any kind of outstanding memory of 
you know, growing up in Boiler, going to co- even school in Boiler, is there any kind of memory that kind of stands out as a... Well, yeah. Well, for me, anyway, and it's relevant to the career, I suppose, I ended up in, but um, I always lament the fact that the cinema in Boyle burnt down. Ah, yes. And I would have been, I think I was like about 13, maybe, at the time. And, like, I don't know, cinema probably wasn't as big a thing for me at the time, definitely. But, we, you know, you'd love going in to see whatever was oh, in. Yeah. And you'd be waiting for the poster outside the Crescent Cinema to change. And sometimes it wouldn't change forever and it'd drive me up the wall. <laughs> but like, I remember the Commitments poster was there, it seemed like for six months or something at one point. Yeah. Like, and, and we couldn't go to it because we weren't 18 or whatever you, you needed to be to go in. But uh, I remember the day the cinema burnt down, being in school and couldn't wait to get out at lunch to get down the town and see what had happened yeah and we, when we got down there the firemen were still knocking around and there was the smoke and the all that kind of stuff still going on and you know i think i always had a, like a, a suspicious mind about someone must have done this on purpose kind of thing but uh, i remember going up to a fire one of the firemen and asking him you know what happened and of course he kind of leans in and he goes to me um well we we have a lead on who did it you know and it was two guys Maguire and Patterson and of course that was makers ah, of matches right. I'd had never clue we're back to school that spreading rumors <laughs> yeah Maguire and Patterson never heard of them <laughs> but these are the guys apparently who burnt the cinema down and then someone of course capped me on within five minutes up in the school like but yeah I always I always remember that but I always kind of hoped the cinema would come back and then they turned into Better Buy and all that kind of stuff. And I suppose when you think back on it, it, it was a pretty big cinema. Like, I think it was like there was around 300 seats in it between the... Up and down. Up and I down, think so, yeah. yeah. And that was really cool. Like, And it was one of the few back in those days, especially I think in the late 80s, early 90s, there wasn't too many cinemas around. Yeah. Um, and we were, so, we were so lucky. But it's interesting you bring up the cinema because we are currently trying to get Brian Kelly, who used to own the cinema mm. before it was burnt down to come on and do a, an episode mm. talking about the history of the cinema and all that. So that That'd would be, be a very, yeah. And there's also another movement in Boyle to, currently it's been set up, a Boyle uh, Film Club. Oh, cool. So they're trying to get, it is up and running, but they're trying to just get a, a venue sorted and all that. So to yeah. bring back the kind of, yeah. just a bit of the nostalgia as well of the old cinema days. Yeah, well, you know? it's like it's got a good arts community in it. And every year, like, we were talking about earlier, yeah. the, the arts festivals always there and stuff. So there's definitely, I think, you know, who wants to get in a car and drive over to Carrick if you don't have to? Exactly. If you have a cinema there or even even if it was a small cinema, like a 50, 30 or 50 seater, you know, it'd, it'd do the town and, you, you know, you get some stuff in, yeah. you get the big movies, I suppose. But like, it's always a kind of nice communal kind of thing for any kind yeah. of town. And it's so, it's so weird as well, because nowadays, you know, we take every, everything is streaming, for example. Mm. But back then, as you said, you'd be dying for the next, what's coming out next. I have vivid memories of um, watching Back to the Future 2. Wow. And at the end of that film, they showed a trailer for Back to the Future 3. I remember. And everyone was like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's coming out like yeah. next year, a year yeah. down the line. And uh, that was like just so magical, the experience of the cinema. Yeah, big back time, then. big time. I remember, I remember... <clears throat> being really nervous going to the cinema the first few times I went like it was such a I didn't know what it was you know going into this room and that you'll sit there with everybody and you'll kind of watch a movie together <clears throat> but I remember going to see like the first Batman movie the Michael Keaton one 
and I think I threw up on the way to it or something. I was so nervous because, <laughs> but I think I think that was mostly because it was, it was. I don't know at the time, but I feel like that movie was an eighteen movie at the time, right. based on the, whatever the censorship kind of uh, rules and regulations yes. were. But I remember I got into it somehow. I went down with one of my mates to it, and we got in and seeing that in the cinema, it was just felt like you know you're not supposed to be there, and it was yeah. such a dark movie as well. For like I'd know what I was at the time. I was probably. 10, 8 or 9 or 10 or something. Were you ever, um, I can't remember his name now and I should, but the the the, the gentleman with the flashlight, it had come around. Oh, yeah. I can't remember his name. And, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I still be scared, like thinking yeah. that he flashed a light in your direction. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, 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 I was always preferred being on the upper level too because you'd see lads throwing stuff off the top. <laughs> and if you were downstairs, like you want to be under the balcony, you didn't want to be. No, you'd need an umbrella. Yeah, over, yeah, 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 yeah. But it was cool. I, I I can remember. And they had like two seaters as well at the back of it. I know like kind mm. of, it was a really nice cinema and it was like probably very straightforward and stuff. And I'm pretty sure it was like probably Brian on his own in there and maybe a student or two helped him sometimes. Yeah. But it was a great, a great place. And I really missed it. And I knew when I, got back to Dublin or went to Dublin I should say um, for college I started going to the cinema an awful lot then and I, I realised I, I, I always rented a lot of movies and all that and you'd be down in McDonough's shop renting stuff out the whole time but like um, when I got to Dublin I say those first four or five years there I would go three or four times a week to the cinema to different movies and I, I just couldn't believe yeah. how much stuff was there you know yeah so that's interesting then how you were such a cinema goer back in those days and that then led into your kind of, well, kind of indirectly. Yeah. So how did you initially get interested in writing and specifically screenwriting? Yeah. Um, Script writing. Yeah, well, it was, it, it wasn't a direct course. Like I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I initially I went to DIT and I did management marketing and I did a degree in that and I did a master's in it then in strategic management and I worked in financial services for a few years. But throughout all that time, I, you know, I always used to like in secondary school writing the compositions, you know, the they give you a theme and you would write an essay and you could just make stuff up. And I always enjoyed that part of it. But then, um, uh, you know, going to the movies all the time through college as well, I would be thinking about images or ideas or stories and stuff. And then in my free time, I'll be writing them down. And um, there was there was a point, actually, when I was I was working in. Scottish Provident was was uh, pensions and insurance and all that kind of stuff and it was like to alleviate some of the boredom sometimes you wanted to create fun with your team and all that and one of the guys on our floor he had like a little action man doll and our team and their team were like not rival teams but there was always a bit of banter and our team stole his action man one time. <laughs> I I ended up taking the action man back to where I lived. And then I would write a story from the point of view of action man in captivity and take photographs and send them around the office as if he had been kind of, you know, like captive. And he's trying to get back to Scottish Providence and to get back to where he was taken from and all this. So it was, I was always kind of like <clears throat> interested in writing stupid stuff like that, you know, like really silly daft stuff. But then... um. I don't know, I suppose I probably had an idea at some point and then I was like, well, that feels like it could be a film. And then in, when I'd be at home in the evenings or weekends, I was literally handwriting these scripts and trying to put them down. And I kind of, that was kind of how I started to get my start in it. And then, of course, like most people probably when they start writing scripts and stuff, 
when you finish it, you think it's like the greatest thing that's ever been written. And that's not actually the case. Yeah. You usually find out pretty hard and, and fast. That side of the brain was already kind of kicking into gear. You had obviously a creativity for composition and writing um, yeah. that's it was in her and Dinya, it was just there and you kind of needed to so you did say something to me about it, the movie Catch Me If You Can had a big mm. impact on you how, yeah. how did that come about how did it leave a big impression on you yeah it was a funny one because at the time I it surprised me even because you know it's a Steven Spielberg movie it's a really really good movie it's got Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks so it's something you're probably going to see anyway but at the time, I probably was watching a lot more stuff that was kind of thriller or horror kind of stuff. And that was the way my kind of um, creative side was kind of leaning a little bit more, I suppose. But I remember vividly seeing Catch Me If You Can in the Savoy Cinema. And I can still remember walking across Connell Bridge afterwards and feeling like it wasn't the movie this time, that there was something else going on. And I felt that it was really um, the writer someone had the the intention behind the way the story was told is what really captured my imagination this time and it's got a, a a kind of interesting structure it goes forwards and backwards in time and you learn more about the guy's past as you're seeing how things worked out for him in the end so it's kind of it's kind of different in some respects i suppose but it really did it's just there was something about it it had spielberg's magic to it and all that kind of stuff but watching it i had this feeling like i was being guided along someone else there was a a voice on the page you know coming through the actors and stuff and that it was whoever put that together I thought was a genius this is really really clever and it really I remember walking across O'Connell Bridge and thinking to myself I have to try this I really want to do this thing and create that feeling in someone else that I could write something that would eventually Mm. inspire someone else maybe in the same way. So that was in that film was 2002 Mm. um and so those couple of years after, what was the what was the process like, or what did you do in that field to kind of further your yeah. chances of starting? So I, I I was working at the time, and then I was I was writing these initial kind of attempts at at scripts, and I hadn't written or I hadn't um, read, I should say, any of the kind of books about structure or books about character development or anything like that. I hadn't read professional screenplays properly, anything like that you should be doing really. Um, so I wrote these two things and then there was this, um, it was the time when MySpace was still around. So that was kind of the thing. And it was, it was very different. Like I'm, I'm not on Facebook anymore or anything, but I remember it being very different where you could, it just felt like communicating with people from anywhere in the world was much more easy and it was a bit more open. But there was a professional screenwriter on there and he was offering um, to critique people's scripts and you could pay him to critique it by... You know, like he'd read the script and give you a kind of overall impression of what he thought, or you could pay him page by page. So I had these two scripts and I had a bit of money because I was working and stuff. And, you know, I was like, well, if I want to do this, I'm going to, you know, impress a guy who's already over there in Hollywood and then he'll just give it to someone and then I'm in the door. And that's <laughs> it. Easy as that? Yeah, yeah, it was so simple. And uh, anyway, I got in touch with him and I said, uh, he goes, do you want me to just do an overall for you or whatever? Because he knew it was a beginner. And I was like, no, no, I'll get you to the page by page, which was like the worst mistake I ever made, I think, in terms of screenwriting. So I gave them him the scripts, paid him. And then there was a bit of a delay because he was usually apparently pretty quick at getting back to people. And then eventually he got back to me and it was like, I think it was the the worst 
the one I would have thought wasn't the best of the two, he came back with. And he absolutely slaughtered me. Like, he mm. completely and utterly destroyed it. But it was like, his notes were, <laughs> his notes were very funny to read in a way when you look back. I haven't looked at them for years now. But I remember looking back at them months later and laughing, thinking, this guy, you can see how angry he's getting page by page because this is so bad. And it was like, literally, you could feel his anger getting bigger and bigger and bigger progressively. And uh, I will never forget sitting down in the kitchen at home after I got the email while I was at home and I was reading it. And this feeling in the pit of my stomach, like... I'd been humiliated worse than anyone in the world. Like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. And I was on the first page of the notes and there was probably 30 pages of them. Even though he was the only person that saw it yeah. and you. Yeah, yeah. Still had but that he was, feeling. Yeah. Oh, he was a professional though. Right. And he knew what he was doing and he was not pulling any punches whatsoever. And like the worst line I can remember, it's the one that I always tell people about and it's the one that stuck in my mind so much was he was on about my dialogue and he goes... Who talks like this in capitals? And then dot, dot, dot. Ugh. <laughs> and huge, huge H with exclamation marks. <laughs> so I think I stopped reading at that point the first time anyway. And then... Um, that was enough abuse. That was enough. But then uh, I got in touch with him and I was so embarrassed. I just said to him, listen, I thought that was the worst of the two. And the one you still have to read is the better of the two. But he was like, I was like, that's no better than this one. Definitely. I knew at this point. And uh, I just said to him, listen, just keep the money. Don't bother doing the second one. He goes, no, no, I'm a professional. You've paid me to do a job, so I'm going to do it. But he goes, I won't expect it to be any better than that one went. So the second one came in and it was an absolute bloodbath completely. Like it was, it was terrible. But um, so that affect that had to affect your confidence. Oh, as, yeah. You know, uh, what happened then? Did you shelve it for a while or? Yeah. So I, I, I did email him back and I was like, I realised how naive I had been, really. And I, I just said to him, listen, I'm really sorry I wasted your time. But he had gotten paid, so he didn't mind, you know. But he was like, listen, you're taking it well, you know. You've, you're not attacking me. A lot of young screenwriters and new screenwriters, they take it very personally. And they kind of, it's you you just don't get it, is the kind of stuff you'd, you'd hear sometimes. But he said, listen, best thing you can do, he goes, is go and read some professional screenplays and get some books on craft and start really studying it if you want to do this. And I was like, yeah, thanks for your advice. So I didn't do anything for about three months because I was like, well, that was pointless. You know, like there's no way. But I I still was really keen on the idea three months later. And I was like, I know that these ideas aren't the best ideas, but I felt there was a better version of them. And that if I just left them in the state they were in, knowing how bad they were, I kind of it'd feel like uh, an unresolved issue or, you know, something like that. Mm. So I went and I read a lot of professional screenplays and I realized what they were doing compared to what I had been doing. And I read some books on it and all that kind of stuff. And then I went back and I actually redid, I got his notes and I printed out his notes. And he had said to me, you know, I will have, you know, some things I'll have missed the mark on because I was so furious probably. But then he goes, other things, they're the notes you need to pay attention to. So he goes, so I did, I got his notes, redacted the stuff that I thought was a bit too cruel. And there wasn't that much of it, to be honest. It was maybe a quarter of it I thought was just, you know, not productive, not constructive. And uh, I, I, I went back through his notes then and I really paid attention to what he said. And then I rewrote the two scripts off the back of that. And I was never going to do anything with them. But they actually turned out, you know, for a beginner try, they weren't too bad and <clears throat> they actually read like a screenplay should read then and stuff like that. So 
once I had them under my belt, I kind of had a bit more confidence then. And yeah. it, it kind of inspired me to keep going anyway. And then in 2009, you joined the Writers um, what the writers? The writers Guild. Guild. Uh, yeah, they, in Ireland. Yeah, they advertised yeah. that they they were starting up writers groups, basically. So, and how did that join that? How did that change or influence your style as a screen script writer? Yeah, that 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 was really good because it was the first time I think I knew anyone else who was trying to do the same thing I was doing. Um, I I don't think I had encountered anyone who had written a script even as an amateur, and um. I remember going along to the first meeting and just going for a few drinks with the pe- a couple of the people I met at it. And these people are like still friends of mine now, you know, but we would meet up. I think it was like every couple of weeks and somebody would submit a script that they had finished, whether it was a short script or a feature script. And uh, nobody was really write- writing too much TV stuff at the time. And um, everyone would read it and then everyone would come back to the table a couple of weeks later and one by one we go through our notes and give the feedback face to face with the with the person who had wrote it so I went through that process plenty of times myself <clears throat> and it kind of thickens your skin a bit because you are hearing the point of view of other people who don't look at the world the same way that you do but they have a good take on where your story is maybe lacking or they see stuff in it that doesn't make sense that you think makes sense to you but you haven't explained it properly on the page or it isn't coming across properly. And then having to deliver notes to people as well made me very aware of the importance of being constructive with your notes rather than just hammering someone and saying, well, that was stupid or, you know, this doesn't work and what were you even thinking? Because that's not going to help anyone. And ultimately what you want to do is you want people to want to do a redraft. You want them to keep going and trying new things. And I think over the, I was in there for about, I don't know, three, four years or maybe something like that and turn up all the time to all the meetings unless there was some emergency situation. I wouldn't miss it. Like I really enjoyed it. Yeah. But it, it really did push me out of my comfort zone too, because initially I didn't want to go into a room with other people and have to defend my work or talk about my work and, yeah. you know, talk your ideas out loud when you're not used to doing that. It was a very strange kind of thing. But then when you start start to see that everyone else is on the same page and they are trying to see, or achieve the same thing that you want to do, it kind of you start to get more comfortable with it. And then it kind of prepares you a little bit, I suppose, for when you need to actually start taking your work out to, you know, producers or directors yeah. or whoever else. And did you take any then formal training in screenwriting yeah so before around the time probably of that group uh there was courses you could do in film base in dublin and uh film base uh was in the same building basically as the writers guild and it's gone now which is a an absolute shame because you could do any number of types of courses to do with filmmaking so i did like you know eight week or ten week courses on the basics of script writing i did you know a couple of different things about uh, understanding film theory and all that kind of stuff but then um you know the recession had happened and i went to another job in pensions and it was like the setup in that job was very good the p it was it was it was a, it was a kind of a more professional place to work and all that but i was there for i'd say about 14 or 15 months and i was on the verge of getting a permanent contract and i i, I had this feeling that if I took it and I didn't go for some formal training and, and I was looking at a master's in screenwriting at the time and um, I felt like if I didn't do that then 
I think the opportunity would have passed me by. I would have ended up in a relationship or I would have had a mortgage or I would have had reasons to not follow your thing. So I took a plunge and I just decided I'm going to, all this money that I'd saved, I was going to actually put into this year, go out to um, the National Film School out in Dunleary, IADT. And I got accepted onto the master's course there and I spent a year out there then basically just learning and working on my craft out there. And that was in 2011, I think, right. 11, 12. Yeah. Because I remember in 2012, you were involved in the hit producer. Mm -hmm. That was a significant project from what I can remember. Um, mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about the process of crowdfunding Philemon mm -hmm. and the impact that had when it was released? Yeah. Was there any hurdles involved with the production of that film as well? Oh yeah, there was plenty. <laughs> there was like, the hit producer was funny. It was like, I had started going to networking events and there were things you could do that were like set up like speed dating, but it was like writers and directors and you could go to the writers guild or the directors guild would kind of stage these events. And I met some um, directors through that. And one of them was Kevin and Kevin had this idea for this movie and he had a kind of basic story for it too. And he was like, I need someone to write the script. So I wrote it. I went off to college for a year. And then when I finished college, he said to me, we're making this, but we need to crowdfund the money or crowdfund the, the budget, kind of raise it through that. And at the time, crowdfunding was, I wouldn't say it's, it was new, but it was the kind of the way. It wasn't you know? like it is now. No, definitely not. And uh, I spent that whole summer, basically, we, we had a full start. We started on some other platform in England and they had promised that no payments would be taken unless we got to our target budget. But payments started coming out of people's cards straight away and I promised them otherwise. So we killed that campaign because it wasn't really going anywhere anyway. And then we restarted it on an Irish uh, site called Fundit. And Fundit, I think no film project had ever raised more than, I think, ten or 15,000 maybe at the time. And we were looking to raise 18,000. And realistically, you know, Fundit would take a 10% cut of you know, whatever you, you know, of your total budget, basically. 18 was what we needed. Kevin figured we needed to make the movie. And um, uh, we spent the summer and it was, we got down to like, it was, it was, it was strange because I had to learn a lot about using social media and Twitter and Facebook and all these things, trying to push the project and get it in front of people every day to try and get people to pledge towards the thing. And we knew that unless all of our um, unless we reached our target, no matter how much money had gone into the pot, if we were 10 euro short, we weren't getting the money. So we had to hit 18,000 or the whole summer would have been for nothing. Mm. And we were a week away from the end of the campaign and we were at 10,000 and we still needed eight more. With a week to go. With a week to go. And now I kind of know, I think like a lot of crowdfunding campaigns, a lot of the the pledges come at the beginning and at the end and the middle is the really tricky part to try and get people to put money in. But we had a week to go and I remember that final week um, spending like probably 18 hour days literally doing anything I could to try and keep it out in front of people. And then by the end of the week, <clears throat> I think by, I think a day before or two days before the campaign ended, we hit 18,000 and when it ended, we we're like just over 20,000. So when Funda took their fee, we still had the 18 left, which was a, mir a miracle really. And it was like, it was down to everyone, people like family and friends and everyone just chipping in and, you know, believing that that's we might that, do that's something. That's how projects like that really yeah. typically, especially when they're just starting off. Yeah, yeah. 
And it was, it was, I didn't, like, halfway through, you couldn't see it. And then the feeling at the end when we got over the line and had the money, it was just, like, surreal. It was completely, like, we're actually going to go and make this thing now. And all systems go then. Yeah, and then, then it got real and it was like, then I started realising what a low-budget script is compared to what I had written. And, like, you know, I get, I, I, I get it from Kevin every so often still. Kevin is the director. And he goes, I asked you for a low-budget script and that's not what you gave me. But he still filmed it. But it was crazy. He was like, I had scenes where they're driving cars. It's nighttime. It's daytime. There's gun shootouts. There's all this stuff going on. Yeah. Thinking, well, that's easy to do. But, like, you have to, to get a car. You have to set a rig on a car, camera, stabilising the camera, getting microphones for everything, getting people to turn up on the day to help you shoot it, paying an armourer to come up with guns, fake guns, you know, that will actually yeah. shoot blanks and all this kind of stuff. So your, your your work was more or less done that you had written the, the, the script for it. Yeah. So you had basically, were you involved in anything else on the film and that side of things after? Yeah, bits and pieces. So, like, um... I would have to rewrite scenes as we were going along because Kevin would have an instinct for something or something would come up and we couldn't do something. I ended up in the movie playing like a cameraman standing awkwardly on camera. Like, it's terrible. I hated it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you'd be there on the day. Some days they'd need extra pair of hands just to carry stuff to and from um cars and all that kind of stuff so whenever they needed me i made myself available but you know um and then i in the editing process later on kevin would bring me in sometimes or he'd send me cuts of it to see what i thought and we try to you know improve it all the time and make the best possible version of it and all that but then once it got past the point i think where he had a cut that he was happy with um, my involvement kind of waned at that point then. I, I kind of started moving on to other stuff because he was trying to figure out stuff like how to get someone to put it in cinemas, how to get it into festivals, sending it out and doing all that kind of work. But yeah, it was very... So what was the t- what was the time frame now from start and shoot to finishing? Um, I would presume it would have to be tight enough. Well, it was, it was pretty quick. I think, I know we finished the crowdfunding campaign sometime like August, September. And Kevin had it all shot by the end, by before Christmas. All right. Okay. Because, and he had to, Michelle, who played the lead character, Michelle Doherty, um, she was, I think it was something like she was maybe going away during December to London or there was something like that. And he had to get her completely wrapped by then. But um, in fairness to him, like he, he, the, 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 not just Kevin, but the whole lot of them. The, the team, like everyone was like, nobody was getting paid. We were all doing this course, just for the sake yeah, of doing yeah. it. Getting the experience. Yeah, the yeah. Thing. And just to have a feature film and sure. have a credit and just see what happened. And, you know, it was remarkable what it went on to do in the end. Like it went to festivals in Mexico and America. Oh, really? And yeah, we, we premiered down in the Cork Film Festival. And that was in 2014. And then in 2016... I can't remember, it was 15 or 16, it ended up, it got a limited cinema run in Ireland. So it was in the Omniplexes down in Limerick and Cork and Waterford and Excellent. a few places yeah. like that. But, and Dundrum had it as well, mm. I think, in Dublin. So it was, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. So you, you won then some award for, mm. uh, in the thriller horror category. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. So that was the Page International Screenwriting Awards and there's kind of like, you know, these days there's a lot more of them around, but there's kind of always about five, between five and ten that most industry people would say they're worth your kind of, you know, like the the um, entry fee, you know, that 
something might come of it if you place in it or if you kind of end up doing well. But yeah, I'd written a script on my master's year called Next of Kin, and it was set in Ireland and it was kind of like a noir kind of thriller, you know, like a detective type thing. And um, I was like, you know, I put it in, I had entered these things, a few of these different things plenty of times, and I'd gone maybe to quarterfinals before, but nothing in a big competition or anything. And then just like every, I think it was once a month, I got accepted to the quarterfinal. Then the month after I was in the semifinal and I couldn't believe it when I was in the final. Oh, so it was kind of like maybe a, a World Cup kind of a approach. Was yeah. It, where you'd pair off against another. I don't such. know if, if they were what they were doing behind the scenes, but the judges would whittle down the pile of scripts bit by bit. And then it was down to the final 10 and there was like this online ceremony or something. And I remember I was living like in, in a tiny little box room at the time. And I remember going up that evening and I hadn't told anyone it was happening that evening in case nothing happened. Mm. But I was happy I got to the last 10 anyway. And um, I remember just sitting there at my desk and it was this virtual presentation and it started counting down the thriller horror category and it was number three was such and such, number two, and it wasn't me. And I was like, oh God, I was like, that's it then. And then my name came up and I was like, I couldn't get over yeah, it. Like that. But what was really kind of fun for me and kind of, uh, encouraging as well I guess was that it was a an Irish story and that it this is a competition that's it's based over in Hollywood like they're they're set up there and they're over there for years and they're one of the ones that a lot of screenwriters would look to to try and place in or do well in you know because it's it's a nice thing on your CV but to to kind of win the win a category and that was just I couldn't believe it and and how did that recognition affect your kind of career trajectory in terms of representation and mm. maybe networking as a result yeah so i think it was maybe a day after or two days after i got an email from the guy who ended up becoming my my manager he's um a guy called peter katz he's he's based over in los angeles as well and he had read the script um and he really liked it. And he was like, you know, I'd like to represent you kind of thing. So it kind of opened the door for me into that side of the world, you know, over in, in the United States rather than um, just having connections here in Ireland. So once I started generating more material, then he would be able to take them to his contacts. And he was building a pretty impressive kind of uh, list of contacts himself. And then his own client base was starting to grow too. So it, it just felt like, it felt like it, it gave me new options that I hadn't before, but it also opened up possibilities over there that, you know, hopefully will continue to pay off yeah, down the road yeah. and stuff. So then in, I don't know, was it 2016-ish, you were involved with the Red Rock Irish TV series. Yeah. Which was a big success. Yeah. Um, How did your roles there as, I think you were an editorial assistant as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how did they kind of... How did it kind of contribute to your understanding of how writing for TV works? Yeah, that was that was really something else, to be honest, because and I, I think it was stuff like the Page Award on my CV gave me a little more credibility when I went in for the interview for that and having the hip producer as well that I've done stuff, you know, Um, but it was it was really different world to what I was used to because initially I was the editorial assistant so everything was coming through my computer basically all the drafts of scripts would come through me different pieces of work had to be done on them by me I was doing a lot of admin I was planning meetings and I was doing um, a lot of the kind of support stuff that the creatives need so that they can just focus on doing their job but it was really 
great because we were in the John Player factory in Dublin, you know, the old cigarette factory. And it's a great old building, but it was like a fridge, basically. And most of the year round, you'd have your your big overcoat on you and stuff. But our, our team, all the screen, the script writers, the um, script editors, um, the showrunners and all that, and the executives uh, would gather in the same room. And we were all together pretty much all the time. They might go to their rooms to break stories or do whatever. But I was getting to witness a lot of that. But then it, when it came to the point where... Um, they would do uh, conferences and they would bring in the senior executives like um, the guys from Element Pictures or Company Pictures or those guys when, when they would come into the room for discussions about where the story would go next and stuff. I started to realize nobody was actually taking down anything that anyone was saying. And these are creative minds who are throwing out ideas to beat the band. So I quietly sat I was away from them I was at my own desk and I started taking down everything they were saying basically as best I could and then at the end of the first day that I did that I stayed back late and they had all gone out for a drink or something and I emailed everyone this edited version of what I had heard over the course of the day and I put all the pieces together that went together and I sent it to them and then they were all like kind of really really happy because you go to the pub and you could forget half the stuff that was said during the day you know but they suddenly had this document that had everything they needed in it so i started sitting in on all the meetings for anything that where they were trying to figure out stories or break stuff like that and i started taking these notes all the time and then when um commissioning meetings would happen that's where you know the story producers would come up with a document for maybe four episodes and you might have three quarters of a page or a full page for each episode and it would explain kind of the story in general what would happen the emotional kind of arc of the main characters that we're dealing with and then the other kind of smaller things that happen too and then when commissioning happened the writers would come in and they were each assigned one of those episodes or maybe two of those episodes And then they would come in and we had whiteboards on all the walls and someone would stand at the whiteboard and the five act structure for each episode was on the board. And over the course of a day or two days, an episode would get broken out into scene by scene by scene almost. So I was getting to witness actual TV writing from the ground up in in that respect. And then everyone was encouraged to talk if you had an idea. Like ideas were good ideas, especially, of course, were like gold. But if you had any idea, you were kind of encouraged to say something. And there used to be a sign on the wall. Uh, it was put up for everyone knew that was coming in so that and they were always pointed to it. And it was like the next time the next time you think you're, you have a bad idea. Remember in a room somewhere once someone said, let's make a movie about sharks in a tornado. And there was a movie called Sharknado. So. That was our mantra was like, nothing is off, you know, even if it's the stupidest thing you think anyone has ever said on Red Rock, just say it anyway, because it could inspire someone else. So you got to learn to not be precious about your ideas. You'd throw them out. And then if they got binned, who cares? You'd you'd often see in a month's time, someone would go, do you remember that thing? That might actually work here. So everything kind of, it was was very, yeah. And it was a very collaborative process where before this, I was very much on my own writing feature scripts at my desk in my house wherever I was and uh, yeah it was it was really it was really informative it was really kind of inspiring and it really kind of kind of showed you the level that you need to kind of aspire towards 
to work in in those kind of rooms. So then would there be major differences? There obviously is, but what would be the major difference you found for write, from writing for TV to writing for film? Yeah, the collaborative nature of it, I think for sure. Um, like you, you do have collaborators in feature films as well. You'd have a, maybe a producer if you have someone with you or you have a director if they're on board from the beginning. But if it's your idea and it's just your thing that you're trying to put down, you're on your own. Maybe you and your manager or your rep or whoever. And maybe if you've got some friends, they might throw you some ideas. But with TV, it's very much you're part of a, it feels like you're part of a, a bigger entity, a bigger kind of organism. And you're not writing to an end, you're writing to a kind of twist or an end of an episode that will continue, you know, and that will... Page turner. Yeah, exactly. And it'll make the audience come back every, you know, Mm. for the next one and see what happens. It's a different set of skills, obviously. Yeah, and also like the way that those guys in particular, the five-act structure that they were using, you know, I had been up until that point for feature films, you know, there's loads of different versions of them, of course, but three acts is the way, you know, I've been trained if by some of my my t- my lectures and stuff it will be in three acts and this was breaking it down into a more five act kind of thing mm. and i think that you can interchange them really now I, I kind of feel like whatever works you know whatever structure works best for you is, is the one that's the best to use but it was it opened my eyes to thinking long term as well and you know where do you want a character to go and how can you keep their story moving rather than you know just looking at the most important moment in their life abc and it's over and then the credits roll and you never see them again so it was it was definitely a different way of thinking you know and it forced you to think in new ways about story too yeah and so then moving on then in 2019 you got hired on season one of viking vikings van halla which I'm sure a lot of people would know. Um, Hopefully. Yeah, I think they do. Um, Then, so you were working as a writer's assistant in that, you said. Mm. Um, And then for season two, you got actually hired as a a writer and Mm. you were involved. You had, um, was it, you were involved in two episodes that you wrote specifically or had big. So can you tell us a bit about that then? What was that like? And you also you mentioned something about uh, the writer of Die Hard, uh, the series. Yeah. He was involved in that. Yeah, so I, I got on to, I didn't know what the Valhalla thing was initially. I, I had done, hired myself out kind of as a writer's assistant for different people whenever it had come up. And through that, I met uh, Liz Gill, who was one of the producers on Vikings Valhalla. And she had seen the work I had done creating notes and stuff and then she asked me would I like to throw my hat in the ring for a show they were about to do so I said yeah and then I did an interview with um, Jeb Stewart and Jeb wrote Die Hard and he wrote The Fugitive so he was like a huge hero of mine and I'm sure like some of the tapes and in McDonald's I wore out The Fugitive definitely like we used to have that out I don't know how many times I saw it but um yeah, I, I had to interview with Jeb and he had a good feeling about me and he said, I know you want to be a writer. He goes, I'm not looking for writers. I have my writers already, but we'd certainly like to have you in the room and it's no harm that you've written already mm. and, you know, you can chip in if you want, but you're there to be the assistant, really. So in the over the course of this season one, um, it was great. It was the end of 2019 and I got to go down to Ashford Studios and every day that's where my kind of base was and the writers would be in the room kind of like the way it was with Red Rock uh, just a bit kind of fancier 
but um they Bigger budget yeah <laughs> it's a really nice studio down there but um yeah and uh sometimes they just run into a wall and i wouldn't have notes to take but i might have had an idea for something and i chirp up whenever i thought i had something interesting and some stuff got kind of amalgamated into things or got used in different ways and then we had finished up it went really really well everyone was delighted with the progress we've made and stuff and they all went away to write their episodes and then um i think it was a month or two later liz got in touch with me again and she was like we're looking for writers at the moment now for a project and she was like do you have a tv sample that you could give us and i was like yeah yeah definitely and i was like great you know like i thought it was going to be some sort of Irish show, you know, like that it'd be something for RT maybe that they were doing because I couldn't imagine it was going to be Vikings Valhalla. So I had a script, I had a TV pilot that I had written, this original thing on my own. And I just asked Liz, I was like, would it be okay if I just had a look over it over the weekend? And then she was like, oh, of course, of course, if you send it to me Monday, it'll be fine. And then I barely slept for the entire weekend because I reread the script and suddenly everything that was wrong with it was there for me to see, you know? So I did a huge rewrite over the weekend. I sent it to her. They all liked it. And then she sent it to Jeb. And then she said, Jeb's going to call you. And then I was like, you know, out of my mind with nerves and stuff. So Jeb called me and I had like read all my support documentation for this series, you know, and reread the pilot over and over. And I was like thinking about everything and he's going to grill me and what way is that character going to i was sure and he just picked up the phone he's like no i read your script really liked it that's great listen i have to run it by the guys over in uh, mgm and netflix but if they like it me and morgan would like you to have or like to have you on the on the team and i was just like not even a five minute call <laughs> it was over like but um morgan o'sullivan then he was one of our executive producers and morgan's like one of the biggest names in irish film he's responsible for so much in Irish film and for its progression over the years. He was like uh, instrumental in bringing Braveheart to Ireland, for example. And Morgan and Jeb together were pulling for me. And then the guys in the executives, I guess, in Netflix and MGM read it and they were like, yeah, give him a shot. And I was on the team. So I got, uh, I was given one episode to write and then the pandemic hit and I thought it was all just going to disappear like literally I'd say a week or two later we were in lockdown and I was looking forward so much to going down to the room and being in the whole thing but they pushed it out of it till I think it was like end of May or June and then we did it all over Zoom which was kind of weird at first because you're trying to make a good impression. We got through it anyway and then with the protocols that had to be put in place for the pandemic and all that kind of stuff things were dragged out a bit more but we would do a lot of calls um, on Zoom then to troubleshoot story ideas and we write drafts upon drafts. And like the process was you would, your, you had your general idea of what your thing was. We'd work it out in the room. You would do a kind of outline, a beat outline, kind of step by step what would happen. And then you'd um, go back and you do um, an outline, a fleshed out outline, which might be like eight or 10 pages of specifically what you were going to do in some scenes and stuff and then you were sent a script and you would do three drafts of script and then it was handed over to Jeb and Jeb being the showrunner his job is he's the overseer over everything so he would do final polishes if story changed beyond we'll say your time working on a script he made all the changes and he knew the characters better than any of us because it was his show and he created it and come up with it and so 
anything that he felt was off of voices. He would change in dialogue and all that kind of stuff. But I got given a second episode at the end of that year. So I kind of was going, this, you know, it, they, they must think I'm doing okay anyway. Did my second episode then and it so was just unreal. The kind of icing then on the cake or the kind of the gold dust as a as a screenwriter for you is you get the credit at the at the end, isn't mm. that kind of so you have credit for two episodes you, you yeah. have credit for two episodes of season two. Yeah. Which is an amazing Yeah. Episode know. five and six and like it felt like they'd never come out at one point. It was just like everything was delayed, obviously. And, you know, like I would have finished my work on them in summer twenty twenty one, something like that. And they didn't come out till January 2023. And you're yeah, just waiting for, time. and then, you know, you've signed NDAs or you've sure. signed privacy clauses and you can't put, publicize it until, you know, the company has, which is fair. But uh, yeah, you're just waiting. You can't tell anyone really about it, you know. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And, you know, like it's that kind of a thing. It kind of gives you a little more credibility when you're talking to people too. They go, okay, you've worked on something real, sure. you know, something, you know. But you couldn't say that back then. Yeah, like I had hip producer and stuff and I had Red Rock and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And they were great things to have, but I didn't have a writing credit on a, a major thing. You know, we'll say like something that a studio had paid for or something like that. So, yeah, getting the credit on the two episodes was was just amazing. But it was the, the process of working with the team. I, I really enjoyed it because an idea that you thought was great at the beginning, you never knew how great it could become beyond that. And it's through that kind of collaborative, mm. everyone throwing ideas over and back or at the end of where we think we've broken the entire story and it's perfect. Someone goes, do you know what? That doesn't work. And it all falls down again and you have to rebuild. Yeah. And it's it's nice to know you've got you've your peers around you then. Well, like I say peers, but the, the guys I was working with are like they're top of their game kind of people, you know, like Jeb, obviously huge Hollywood name, you know, Die Hard and Fugitive, among other things. But then, you know, Vanessa and Owen and Declan, who I worked with, had done a lot of stuff over their careers already, like TV and film kind of stuff. And they were being really supportive to me because they knew I was in at the deep end kind of, you know, I was getting this huge opportunity. But they were they were great. They were just like so supportive and encouraging and then you know, like anything they could do to troubleshoot stuff or if they thought I was kind of going astray or mm. something they might say something to me but it was it was it was a really really positive process like. so un unlike then your script for the hip producer which you said was like you were meant to write a low budget yeah well with with the Valhalla you didn't have that problem as in terms of as much you could write as freely and as kind of as it fits in the narrative of the overall series yeah to a point though because mm. I thought that as well at the beginning. <laughs> and like, I think uh, before I had officially been sent a script, I was so determined I wanted to do a good job so that I would get another opportunity, you know. And uh, I went ahead and I, I wrote like a rough draft for myself just to get used to the voices and trying to write these characters who everyone else had already been writing. But um, I'd written some mad stuff like, you know, and then... When COVID came along, I think it restricted things even more because actors even couldn't be kept together and there was all sorts of things, you know, you, they had to be tested so much. But then also, I think on set, where you're in a show where there's a lot of violence and there's hand-to-hand -hand combat during the pandemic, that made things even more difficult for them, like, mm. you know. So things changed as it went on, but like, um, it was it was Red Rock, um, Red Rock in a way 
made me wise to the fact that it wouldn't be as kind of anything you want to do is 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 cool kind of because I learned all about parameters basically on on Red Rock. And it's basically like we can do X amount of scenes with X amount of actors in X amount of locations per episode because it has to fit a schedule, it has to fit in the budget, all that kind of stuff has to factor in. And it was the same to a point on Valhalla. Valhalla was a much, much bigger budget, obviously. But, you know, they weren't going to build, um, you know, like some mad set in London that we're going to use just once. once it had yeah. to be something that could Fitted be... In. Yeah, yeah okay. to a point. You yeah. know, there was, there was certain things they would build for a, one, a one-off use kind of thing, but they'd be kind of maybe stuff for the set out in the wild or sure. the countryside. And was it filmed? Where was it filmed? Then in Ashford Studios in Wicklow. And yeah. did you get a chance to go down during shooting or was that COVID restricted? COVID uh, didn't let me down during shooting. I got down the April before my work ended and uh, I was brought down. They were... They were building this set in season two. There's a place called Yamsburg that part of the story, one of the stories is set in. And I was brought down because there was, they wanted a couple of writers down there just to talk through some of the stuff that was going on with the build and how they were planning things and how things would look. And they wanted me to see it as well. But it was mad. You, there was brought out into the middle of this absolutely huge quarry and they had a dugout, you know, like it was, it was kind of a hole in the ground anyway. But they had a dugout and they were building this huge set. And it was the stuff like that had been in your head the entire time. And they were going, over there is going to be that. And the ships will come in through here. And they were building like... Yeah, your creations coming to life before your eyes in a way. Yeah, the whole team has built this thing. And then it's like this remarkable, like really like the people behind the scenes who do all the production stuff. Those guys are amazing because they're like the, they're like a different type of artist, but they can imagine these sets and they build them and they make it look like something from the past, you know, and it's so convincing when you're there. And it's so I only got down that one time, which was I really, really, I really wanted to be down there uh, during the shoot, even to see some pages, even if a lot of the page had changed from what I had written. I just wanted to be down there to see how it was being made compared to how we did like a producer compared to how we did Red Rock, because you learn a lot from being in those kind I'd of I'd say so, yeah. And, yeah. and seeing it co- uh, to come to fruition from inception of the idea playing out to the final product. Yeah, yeah. You know? And like the actors bring so much as well then, you of know, course. like they, their own take on what, how the character will say a thing. And it's totally yeah. different to what you might imagine. But then you hear it and you go, that's way better, you know, like yeah. so. Yeah. Um, one question I wanted to find out was pitching projects and networking seems to be an ongoing kind of uh, aspect of your journey. Can you talk about how you tackle pitching projects to producers or whoever you pitched your projects to. Yeah. So, um, like I said before, I've got Peter over in the States who brings stuff to companies I'd never get my foot in the door with at all if he wasn't there, you know. But um, on this side, it's, it's it's a lot, it's very different here because there's a different, it's a more open kind of a setup people know other people you know it's a quite a small community and a lot of a lot of people know everyone else you know but like we'll say like um back in october last year now it was the first time i think since all the lockdowns and stuff where they had an in-person pitching kind of thing available so i i applied for it and i got onto it and it was run by screen ireland and you basically there was i think eight or eight or ten different producers and you got time in the room with each producer and you could pitch your project to them. And the whole idea was to pitch to them. So on day one, they all came in and they told us what the company was about, what kind of stuff they were looking for. 
and then day two it was just like you were on from 10 in the morning until I think it was like five in the evening or something and you were going from you you had a schedule and you had to go from one room to another and literally go in and pitch in person to that producer whoever they were and hope that they like your thing but beyond that kind of stuff um networking is probably the biggest thing outside of the writing that any writer needs to do and um trying to get along to events trying to go down to things like the Galway Film Fla if you can get to stuff in the Dublin Film Festival, if you can even go to any of the local festivals that are around. I know like there's at the moment the Boyne Film Festival has gone on and that's been growing for the last couple of years. And there are film communities all around Ireland and even going to your local one is a great way to meet like minds in your area. But you never know, there might be a producer sitting there or a director sitting there. And it's always worth just mingling, going around, introduce yourself. And that's what it takes is you have to actually go up sometimes and make the first move, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, a, that's just an ongoing part of. Yeah. And then yeah. connecting. Prospecting, like, really. Yeah, that's, basically. Yeah. And you are you are a salesman to some degree as well. You know, you're on LinkedIn, you're on all these things and yeah. connecting. Yeah, yeah, that's and it. Trying it, to it find opportunities. Sales, yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. Um, and you, you mentioned you're working on... I don't know how much you can talk about it, but a, mm. is it a biopic or biopic? How do which is the? I, I would have said I biopic as well. Yeah. Biopic, yeah. yeah. So that's a, a, a dramatization of a, a real life character. Yeah. So I know you probably can't talk about it, but is there anything else you're adapting or doing mm. at the moment? Well, the one the one that I'm doing now it's um it's for it's a guy. He's his name is uh, Doctor Patrick Tracy, and um he's basically he's one of the pioneers of the aesthetic dermatology and that whole industry so to do with um wound healing and botox and fillers and all that kind of stuff but um i met him through a friend so that's where your network comes in someone recommends you should meet this guy kind of thing he's looking for a writer now with the just sorry to interrupt yeah. but would the netflix uh credit have a, a big part to play as well like it, badge of honor kind of thing oh yeah it, it definitely helps because i know when i went to meet him for the first time you know he said you go you've got a good track record so he had looked and he had seen what I had done. So, you know, the fact that I think the fact that you're you're around still as well, sometimes people have to drop out and it's usually economic reasons. But the fact that you can stick in or you're still trying to do stuff that even on its own, even if you don't have a Netflix credit, it's it's encouraging to people. But um, yeah, so he's he he has written a couple of books and he gave me both of the books to read. And his story is remarkable, really. He's beyond all the... Um, the kind of aesthetic dermatology side of things and all that. He's lived a really, really interesting life. Um, you know, he, he he was smuggling cars from Munich to Istanbul to pay for his medical school uh, back in the 80s, I think it was. And he was um, he had a needle stick injury uh, from a HIV patient when HIV was a relatively new thing and nobody knew what to do with it. And he managed to survive that. He cut a chunk out of his leg where the needle went in. He had his friend literally a surgeon tear his muscle and skin off his leg to take it out and then he had to be tested for years to make sure it never seroconverted and then he was in Iraq at another point and he ended up a prisoner of not of Saddam Hussein but of Saddam Hussein's regime and he was in prison for about a year managed to get out of that just before Iraq invaded Kuwait and held everyone who was in the country essentially hostage and then he ended up being Michael Jackson's um, dermatologist in 2006-7 around then. So he's had this really unique uh, globetrotting kind of life. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a 
definitely, I think, like I said it to him, I did the treatment already, so I'm on the script point of it now. And I said to him after I did the treatment, I was like, it's definitely the hardest story I've had to find a way through because he is so much that's worth telling. And then there's and then you have to find a story, though, to link everything, to link everything together. So my approach anyway has been a story in the present day that kind of cuts back into the past and I thought about it then after I had pitched to him. It's like catch, catch me, if, me you if you can. I'm just going to say, <laughs> yeah. that. yeah, yeah. And it's it was it was funny. It was like after I had initially brought I brought three separate pitches to him because I thought it was a rack story on its own. You could do it. It'd be like an Argo film. It's remarkable that story. It's so good. Um, and I had done another one which was just a linear from 1978 through to now. But then this other version was the more kind of Dynamic. unique one, yeah. and it was where like Patrick is was awarded um, the best aesthetic to, uh, doctor in the world basically a couple of years ago and his clinic has been awarded I don't know how many times and he's always seems to be getting awards but it was I thought it was interesting to me to look at a guy who seemingly has it all and then to cut back into his past to see where he, he from, still yeah. focuses on what are the things that still kind of keep him awake at night and then how do you get him over those in the context of a fictional film because you know life doesn't work out as simply as movies do usually anyway so that's the way the approach I've been doing with that but it's certainly been really interesting it's been really strange and different I've adapted stuff before but I've never adapted stuff where I meet the person who the story is about yeah which is a different kind of thing so is he is he kind of producing it himself? Because yeah. you said you have to go to him with the script. You're not going to someone yeah. else. It's it's Patrick is he's very much he's very media savvy and he's very aware of his story and kind of I think the the commercial value of it in a way you know it is a kind of there's very much Hollywood elements to it. So he's been looking for someone to do this for years and he's tried a couple of writers is my understanding before and it just didn't click the way he wanted it to. So for the moment where he's he has hired me privately and it's kind of it came at a good time for me as well, because obviously with strikes and stuff going on in the States, uh, the Writers Guild here want us to stand in solidarity with them. Now, that only means for like struck companies and stuff. So it wouldn't mean like the a lot of the Irish companies or anything, but it came along at a good time for me and um, he will own the script once I finish it. And then, you know, he'll, he, you know, to a point as well. He, he will want to bring it to producers and I have some connections and I'll try and get the script into people's hands for him so that it can move on to the next step. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So it's still early days, obviously, in that whole yeah. process. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I should give him a script by the end of October. But um, yeah, these we'll things, when you, when, you, when you think of films or even TV series, you always think, oh, well, I always think anyway, this was probably done last year. I know. No, as as you said a number of occasions before, yeah. these things take so many, so long. Yeah. I yeah. saw an article recently and it was like, you know, the horror franchise, the Saw movies. So there's a new one of those coming out. But I saw someone on Twitter the other day and they were like, they put up a screen grab of the first messages that were sent and they were sent like 2017 or something. Or it was, it was something crazy. Yeah. It's like you're nearly the guts of a decade planning something that won't come out probably till 2024, maybe, you know, yeah. or something like that. And a lot of things have to line up for a movie or anything to get made, really. So to move on then briefly to, we've talked about this in the past before, but the role of AI mm. and um, I'm kind of fascinated with the the role of AI that 
you know, it can't be ignored what's happened in the last year. So how has AI potentially impacted your field um, and what can be done to uh, kind of keep things as creative, humanly creative as possible? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it is it's kind of, it's, it's kind of the big issue at the moment, really. And I think beyond screenwriting, I think it's the big issue for everyone, really, the AI thing. Um, at the moment, what's happened is uh, that chat GPT-4, I think, is the current one that's out. You know, they put that out and a lot of um, screenwriters have used it and they've tried to see what it can do, you know. And they've come back with results that are going, it's not that intuitive. It doesn't really know. You have to prompt it. You have to feed it things, you know. And if you ask it for a movie in the style of a certain director, it'll kind of cobble together what exists of that director and it'll come up with an idea like what they might do. That's just kind of a copy paste. But um, I read an article recently in Time and it was by a screenwriter and his friend, I think, works with AI and he brought him to see a version of AI that isn't publicly available at the moment. And he said it it was terrifying what he saw. He said within five years, your job as a screenwriter could be obsolete because the one that's out there now, it's kind of funny and it writes silly dialogue and bits like that. This other thing he saw seems to be like way, way, way more advanced. And it's like they've put out the, it's like a Trojan horse. They put it out there. It's no harm to you. Don't worry. And the Writers Guild in America at the moment are on strike. And, you know, a good portion of it is to do with being fairly paid for the work you do and getting residuals so like continual payments after your work finishes based on the success of a show and um the but a big big part of the disagreement that they have with the um the organization that represents the studios is that the studios want to start using ai and the fear is that the studio will use ai to they'll have an idea they'll get AI to write a basic 90 page or 100 page screenplay and then they will just hire a writer to rewrite that screenplay which means that they only have to pay them a small fee they only have to pay them a rewrite fee they don't actually get you know your 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 fee as a writer normally would you won't get any back end if there was anything like that built into it production bonus is probably nothing like that and you probably get nothing out of the streaming side of it too because you're the idea originated in-house and all you did was a rewrite so you've no ownership of it and I think that part of it is, it's kind of the worst part of it when you think about it, because essentially what it does, if you have a version of AI that can write anything and can write really, really great movies that are crowd pleasers and all that kind of stuff, it means a computer is going to start doing all that work. And it means that screenwriter, a screenwriter as a profession will just die off. Only the, yeah. only, only the people who have a lot, a lot of money at their disposal will be able to afford to take the, the lowly paid jobs kind of that still exist and stuff, or maybe the elite screenwriters, you know, the best of the best. But like, it's hard to know as well, you know, like something new is always, there's always an element of fear built in with something new and you think it's going to take everything. You hope, you you assume the worst and you hope for the best, you know, that kind of way. But um, I feel like if they get a deal now that kind of, controls AI so it can be used for research purposes or used for kind of ancillary kind of stuff but not as a creative tool then maybe that's kind of or that'll be okay but I think if it gets to the point where they're using it to create scripts mm. it's uh, it's going to be dangerous and it's it's definitely a, a kind of it's seen as a threat right now but who knows like in 10 years time someone could listen back to what I'm saying now and goes 
what a naive idiot like you know yeah because we course, don't that's, know that's always the way especially with progression of technology um but i had this conversation with someone before and i said if there isn't a kind of a cap done of an ai of some sort you're going to have hollywood being able from an actor point of view be able to create an ai persona okay and they're like almost a real human on screen they have their own characteristics and you'll see them interacting maybe on fake fake social media settings mm. and that they're like a, a a superstar but they're ai yeah and people will kind of fan follow these people and they're just Again, it's the whole virtual reality AI side of things. I think that's extremely scary, but you mm. can see how the technology could go down that route, that Hollywood could create a virtual Robert De Niro. Yeah, um, but there's a podcast I, I listen to now and it's about the strike specifically. And this guy, Billy Ray, he's one of, you know, really, really good screenwriters in Hollywood. He's well known. He's written some amazing stuff and he runs this podcast. And one of the episodes he did, he... Um, his guest was AI basically and he kept saying to us I'd like you to answer this in the voice of Morgan Freeman I'd like you to answer it and it did and you can hear the glitches in it and stuff but it's Morgan Freeman's voice and that's the same for actors are in strike now as well because voice actors could be wiped out completely Uh, of course you know actors generally like you say if they can create a kind of a virtual person or whatever. I think they do it in Korea or Japan or somewhere. There is a pop star well, somewhere just, over there. There's these deep fakes as well, which are out of while. Yeah. But when that technology goes to the next level, and as you said, the actors have to protect the copyright of their mm. image and trademark. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, I, I don't know who was it that was, was it, I don't know, was it Kanye West or something? There was some song that was created in his voice or something. Mm. There was something, I'm not too sure. I remember you're right, yeah. There but there was something about that. But I think that's that goes into real dangerous territory because, mm. um, but then could you see this, could you see a time when, for example, let's say Leonardo DiCaprio, if there was, if they were able to re-clone him mm-hmm. and use his image and his voice mm-hmm. and he could say, well, I'm happy with that as long as I'm getting paid sufficiently. Yeah. You can do what you like. I give you, you can, because I'm, you can clone me to keep me at the age I am so that I can still do these action movies or whatever. Yeah. Is there a possibility that that could be an angle that technology goes down that we clone an actor, we pay him rightly so a fee that he's happy with, everyone's in agreement with. Yeah. And this is the way, you know, you can have a an irony lasting forever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think, um, some actors have have addressed that already. I think I'm not sure now. I couldn't say for certain, but I think Tom Hanks spoke about that. You know, what am I getting out of it if you're using me? But like for years, they've been, you know, motion capture for we'll say Lord of the Rings or any of these fantasy things where you know they they they've a lot of kind of sequences that are special effects. The motion capture they put dots all over an actor's face and they capture it at that time. Um, but like there there are a lot of instances coming up on social media since all these strikes began where background actors who you know like extras there's stories coming out where you know a friend of mine is a background actor they were brought in onto a major major movie major production they were brought to something called a truck basically they went into the truck they were in their entire body was scanned head to toe and in their contract it says that they can use their likeness in perpetuity so forever right and they got paid for the day 
and that's all they get then. So they don't get anything. So they get nothing else. And your job as a background actor is gone then. And you could see yourself in the 20 best movies of the next 10 years and you're in all of them and you got nothing out of that work. And they could be like major, major, you know, like billion dollar movies and all that kind of stuff. So that kind of stuff, it just feels really unfair and it feels like what's driving it is corporate profit because it seems like um, financial institutions have their hooks in to a lot of these companies and they're all looking at how is the stock doing you know is the price rising or falling and they react on the basis of these things but what what a lot of the writers are saying is they're trying to save hollywood from itself that if you get rid of um writers if you get rid of the human voice and the human kind of experience and you know each person has their own outlook on the world you're going to end up with some sort of really generic kind of thing and people will stop going to theatres and you'll save money because you don't have to spend money on putting things in theatres, but then they'll stop watching your shows and then the industry dies. Yeah. And it's that kind of, for it's a bit of a big word, but it's like an existential threat kind of thing of course, yeah. that it feels like at times, you know. And of course, like all big corporations always like to cut out the middleman mm. as long as they're not the middleman. Yeah. So yeah. that's true. You know, they want to cut out as long as, bottom profits are there for them yeah you know? and and like historically the writer in hollywood has a kind of has always been treated kind of unfairly they can't do anything without the writer on you know up until this point now where ai has arrived they can't really do anything without them they resent the fact that they need them in ways not all companies are all producers you know these are human beings as well a lot of these people are reasonable but it's like when it comes down to the the corporate bottom dollar kind of thing they just want to kind of pay the writer, get rid of them, and then let's just finish the finish the thing as quickly as we can. It hasn't been my experience, you know. I've 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 worked with really really great people, with producers and stuff, and the likes of Valhalla and all that who want to make a really great show and all that kind of stuff. And they don't they don't just want to kind of bring you in and get you out as quick as they can. Um, but it exists in the industry mm-hmm. still, you know, that kind of attitude. And it's like you would see it as well. As a young writer, you know, when you start going out and stuff, it's hard to get paid for your work. And, you know, you need to be able to prove yourself and prove your worth and stuff. But, you know, a lot of people will ask you to do it for free because, oh, it's just a script. But Mm -hmm. it's still someone's time. Someone has to sit down and they have learned their craft and they've put in the time. They've probably spent a lot of money doing all that kind of stuff. And then they're going to put their expertise to use for you. And then you're promising them that, you know, when it when it gets made, though, we'll sort you out. And yeah, I it know. might never get made, but that's your time gone anyway. Um, you mentioned there, like, the younger writers that are coming up. So at this stage as a seasoned scriptwriter, what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get their start in, in this field? Is there any tidbits of advice you could give them? Network. Right. It's, it's it, like, you need to keep writing all the time, I would say. It's the thing, I've been glad I've been able to kind of... Um, push myself to and be kind of disciplined about it so as my as many days as I possibly can in the year I'll sit down and I'll be at my desk and I'll try to do something I'll write something because the more that you turn up at your desk and you're working on your scenes and you're evaluating your own work the better it's going to become inevitably and you'll start making leaps in your storytelling uh but networking is the the other side of it it's the it's the least fun part of it initially because it's so hard for a lot of people, particularly like if you're an introvert, going into a room and having to talk. And then when you like your idea, but don't know if anyone else likes it, and then you start pitching it and you can see in their eyes. Imposter syndrome <laughs> kicks in <laughs> totally, as well. Totally, totally. Yeah. yeah. 
And it takes time to get used to all that. So I think as early as possible, anyone who would have aspirations towards it should try to get into some groups or try, you know, mixing with people even on um, screenwriting forums online and just kind of talking about movies, talking about scripts, talking about all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I think I think as well it's it's something that with, with with this kind of industry you have to have a knack for it earlier on. Like mm. you had you've kind of found that you had a passion for it walking home from the cinema that time mm-hmm. after catch me if you can. You know, I feel if someone was to just say pick up the pen as such these days, I want to try script writing. I don't know, is it a is it kind of is it ingrained into them as much as like having a almost like having a kind of a, a talent in a way. You, yeah. know, you you can develop a talent, but if you don't have it or the interest, the passion, I think it, creativity speaking anyway, it must be very difficult to try and develop something that you, oh, I just want to try my hand at this. Yeah, well, that's, it's. It, I think even doing that is probably worthwhile for anyone, even if they don't love it or love the idea of it. Give it a go and then you'll find out, yeah. you know, you'll find out whether you actually like it pretty quickly. Yeah. But screenwriting as well is kind of a funny one because it's not like writing a book you can't explain what's in someone's head really unless they speak it out which is kind of not done you know it's better when it's inferred or people see it visually and they get the message themselves and draw their own kind of conclusions but um so it's a it's a more it's you're writing visually and you're writing dialogue that's kind of designed in a way to say more than one thing sometimes and uh, that's very very hard to do and it's something i'm still working at all the time um but like i I, i'd always encourage anyone to give something a go if they want to give it a try get it out of their system yeah see see what happens and then if you have an experience like me where you're slaughtered and ripped apart and then three months later you still feel like it's something you're still interested in well well, then you know. You then have a good, so, yeah, there's yeah. a good. That's a good litmus, litmus yeah. test. Then that you're 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 in it for the long haul. Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. So looking forward, then Niall, what kind of goals or aspirations do you have for this line of work going forward? Like, is there anything that you're working on or that you'd like to achieve? Yeah. Um. Well, I just finished kind of working on a TV series that I, I kind of came up with myself, and uh, I've written the first episode and I've written the the pitch document for it basically and my manager has that now so uh we're making up a list of companies that should be okay to approach but we're going to double check with the guild before we approach any of them anyway just so we're not breaking the strike or anything but we want to start taking that out to companies so it would be amazing if we could sell that one it's kind of a crime drama crime thriller kind of thing and uh, it's kind of got a kind of quirky dimension to it which makes it a bit more fun um, but beyond kind of, we'll say like continue writing my own projects, I'd love to, you know, obviously if something like that sold and you get to make your own show or you get to be, you know, I wouldn't be showrunner straight away. I would have to work my way up to something like that. But that's the kind of stuff that I think I'm, I'm most kind of looking for in a way is that kind of onset experience, but working alongside someone who's much, much better than I am doing this kind of stuff and who thinks about it in a more three-dimensional way rather than me who thinks about what's on the page and how that will look on screen, you know? Yeah. And um, I think it's it's that kind of stuff. I did, if it was my one regret with Valhalla was that I just couldn't get down. It was no fault of anyone. You just yeah. couldn't go um, because of the lockdowns and stuff. But um, yeah, that kind of experience and kind of, you know, br- 
kind of forging better relationships with the producers that are in Ireland as well, because there's some amazing companies here. And I've got a feature project that um, a director brought to me. It was his original story. And we've written a, a good treatment for that now. And the company are interested. And hopefully, like, if we're able to kind of make it a little bit more like the kind of thing that they're looking for, they might want to progress that with us. But it'd be cool to work with those kind of people because they're kind of along the lines of the genres of things that I'd like to be kind of kind of in all the time, you know, like thrillers and horrors and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, just keep writing, but then build the network a bit more and then hopefully get some on hand experience would be kind of the main thing. Excellent. Um, so before we finish off, now I always finish up with asking, is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention? Um. No, actually, do you know what? Um, the when you said that there about some people mightn't, you know, like have a natural kind of talent for writing stories or whatever. I think I think reading books gives that to people. You know, you're you're surrounded by your family, and your family is your first kind of drama. Do you know what I mean? You, I think it's always really interesting to see how as you grow up, you learn new things about your parents. You see how your siblings react in certain situations, and your opinion about these characters in your life kind of changes. But reading books and reading other screenplays and stuff like that can really, without you consciously thinking of it, it can t- it teaches you how a story should work. And I think in the beginning when I started writing scripts and stuff, um, when I look back on them or think back on them, the general shape feels like the shape of what a movie is. Even though I hadn't studied anything of it, it's inbuilt in everyone kind of storytelling is oh, how everything has been passed on. And I think it's it's just kind of, it's there. Everyone has a story to tell is, is what they say. And I think anyone who's who wants to give it a go should give it a go and just see what becomes of it. Maybe you're a better prose writer than a screenwriter. And, you know, everything's worth trying, though, I always think. Perfect. Well, listen, Niall, thanks very much. Really enjoyed that fascinating look into the life of a scriptwriter. So uh, thanks very much for coming on. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for having me, Karen. So that's it for this episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you like the content, we'd really appreciate it if you could share it. You can follow us on Facebook by searching for Voices of Boyle, and you can also contact us on our website by visiting voicesofboyle.com. We're always looking for new guests, so if you'd like to be on the show, or if you know someone who you'd like to join us, please reach out to us via our Facebook page or website. Thanks very much, and we'll chat to you again soon. <laughs>